Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Doing pretty good, Richie. How you been, brother? Man, I've been better. I've been working on my family room, and my family room is a converted garage. So it's one of the big reasons we bought the house like 16 years ago. Oh, so that you must have a room with a ton of space in it then. Oh, it's huge, man. It's like 25 feet by 23 feet. So there's lots of wall space, lots of ceiling space. And so we haven't really painted or really touched the room uh, since we've had our first kid, uh, which was about 12 years ago. Of course, Lucy is like, I want the room painted. I'm like, okay, I'll finally get to it. Now, the problem when I start doing stuff like painting is I am just so detail oriented, which is probably what makes me a good developer. Uh, It's every little thing on the wall or anything I need it all needs to be right and to be, you know, consistent and all that stuff. And so it has literally taken me like a month of, you know, as soon as I get out of work or, you know, take a couple of days on the weekend or whatever to paint this room. Now there's like four coats of freaking paint on this thing. There's two coats of paint on the ceiling and I'm not even done yet. Right. So I still got to do the trim. I got to do all this other stuff. And it's like, I just want this thing to be done already. I am just through with home improvement. I, I am avoiding it now like the plague. That's hilarious. We should have you come on one day and do an episode on home improvement and tell dude, us about all I, the cool projects you've been doing to your house. Dude, I sanded my walls. It's like, who does that? I mean, who in their right mind would do something like But no, it wasn't even on one side, of the, one wall versus another wall. And so I sanded the whole thing down. It's like, you're an idiot, Rump. I mean, what do you just, <laughs> just live with it? Nope, I can't do that. But it's Jeez. nice and smooth though, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of, that's the look we wanted in that room. Uh, the rest of the house is the older plaster walls. So I wouldn't be sanding those type of things. Um, but in this room, we when we redid the room 12 years ago, we wanted the flat walls without texture and all that stuff. So right. we had one wall that had some texture from a, a previous paint job and then another one that didn't. And it's like, oh, well, we we got to even it out. I can't live with it like that. It'll drive me nuts. So, right, right, right. so what have you been up to, man? I know you've been traveling all over this world. Uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling for the past, it feels like the past two months or so, to be honest with you. You know, just going to different conferences, getting the opportunity to meet a lot of interesting people. I actually went to one really interesting conference and it's called All Things Open. And that was in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And that was so cool because it was just a hodgepodge of just different technologies, different people. And, you know, it wasn't a, oh, why are you here? Oh, and what are you doing here? It's, you know, everybody's just kind of like on the same page. You know, everybody's helping each other out and doing workshops and, you know, just kind of learning together in a very positive and inclusive way. So, you know, really love the conference, man. I'm actually looking forward to going through it again next year. Well, that's cool. I mean, it could be worse. It could have been thing, all things closed and everybody's waiting outside because nobody could get in the door because it's all closed. <laughs> exactly. Luckily, we didn't have any of those problems, right? So we're all good. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Aurelia Muser. So Aurelia is a developer and curious court cartographer building communities around code at the Mozilla Science Lab. Previously of Yushihari, Internews Kenya, and Carto, she's been working in open tech and a nonprofit journalism space for a few years. 
She's taught coding classes at GDI NYC, SVA DSI, and Parsons. She also runs a radio show based on the semantic web called Stereo Semantics and hosts a show and tell meetup called That Belongs in a Museum. Yeah, you belong in a museum, that's for sure. No, actually, I belong in a museum. <laughs> totes, dude, totes. I'm, I'm, I'm clutching a Commodore 64. I belong in a museum. <laughs> this episode was recorded on July 3rd, 2017, and now our conversation with Aurelia Moser. Away from the keyboards feature conversation. So really, what are some of your favorite shows that you watch on Netflix? Like what's on your queue right now? What's in my queue? Um, So I guess I've I've been watching Scum. I've been watching um, Twin Peaks, the new one, I guess. I don't know if that's even on Netflix, but I kind of toggle between Prime and Netflix and then things I VPN to get access to or like like (laughs) totally legally download Um, (laughs) but I've been watching the new Twin Peaks and it is such a trip like if you want something that totally messes with your head it's like a weird art film where you really want to figure out what's going on but you can't possibly even develop theories until eight episodes in and I've been watching it with like three friends and we have this very elaborate almost serial killer like board of all of these post-its where we've tried to track different theories and we have like string connecting different things we went to the craft store and we just like bought a bunch of and (laughs) made this amazing board so we're trying to figure out what's going on but it's really mind-boggling i have no idea so I'm thinking that you actually saw the original series, right? Of course. Yeah, we had a okay. we had an in-depth screening party that was almost like a sleepover for two days where we all just watched it again because I, I watched it when I was younger, but I yeah. um I haven't seen it in years and I forgot a bunch of the things except the really weird stuff. We definitely did a screaming, but I, I wanna say that it doesn't really help <laughs> all that substantially to know significant things about the previous series. Oh, really? Oh, I was kind of hoping that they would continue a lot of those storylines. Well, they do. Like, there are things that you will recognize. Um, I mean, it's much later. It's 25 years later, right? So you will recognize certain characters. And weirdly, some of the characters look like they haven't aged a day. And then some of the characters were like, whoa, what happened to that dude? And (laughs) they were so hot. I know. What happened? Billy Zane, what's wrong with you? (laughs) No, totally. So, um, so yeah, that's what I've been watching lately. Um, And uh, yeah, I guess on Netflix, I don't even know. I've started a bunch of series I watch Stranger Things. I kind of binge things, I want to say, when they come out. And then I have to wait a ridiculous amount of time before the next one. So I was a big Stranger Things fan. I was a big, um, oh, what was that Stephen King book that they made into the retrospective on JFK's assassination? Maybe that was on Amazon Prime. I don't remember. 1969? Yeah, it was like the 19, it was the date, November or something, 1960, which is a sad indictment of my... um, ignorance of the date of jfk's assassination but i did watch that entire series as it turns out um 1963 that was that's when it happened that sounds right (laughs) so um so i watched all that and i watched man in the high castle all the new men in the high castles although i guess it's not very new it was several months ago um i tend to like hopscotch between different things and sometimes i'll pick stuff up much later after having binged the first half of it 
Um, it really depends on work and how crazy work is and whether I can afford time to really dish. I recently saw the uh, Glow. It was been done oh, by right. the... Oh, um, right. I heard about that. Yeah, it was done by the producers of Orange is the New Black, which yeah. I, I could never get into. Yeah, I same. tried like a couple times and it's like... I watched I, the first feel, season and then I was just kind of over it. I don't know. Well, when I'm watching it, I just feel confined, right? It's like they're in prison. <laughs> I just feel like I'm in prison. It's like, no, I don't like this feeling. This isn't good. <laughs> um but it it, it it definitely had this this orange is new black feeling because you had all these uh, quirky, strange kind of female characters, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't in in prison, and obviously they interacted a lot different. It's only a half hour show, right? So it, you know the the plot just moves pretty quickly, but it wasn't bad. I, I kind of I kind of enjoyed it. Um, the other show that I saw on Netflix. Um, I kind of like their their documentary series, mm. um, but this one was called The Keepers. Mm. And it was about a murder of a nun, uh, oddly enough, in 1969. Maybe it was 1970, and it was really cool. Huh? The cool keepers. in the fact that these, yeah. So these this nun who used to be a, a teacher, uh, she was murdered, huh. and they go into her murder and all the stuff around it, and they follow these women who were the students of this nun and 50 years later, they're trying to figure out what happened and and who killed her and why and all this other stuff. And it goes into this really deep web of uh, stuff that was going on in the Catholic church at the time and potential reasons of why she may have been murdered. And um, to this day, no one knows. And it's still, you know, the FBI has the case and, FBI doesn't have any cold cases. Everything is open, so they can't say anything because mm-hmm. it's an ongoing case. But they they do get into it a little bit with some of the FBI stuff. But it was it was like seven episodes long. Um, really really fascinating. Again, I like the doc the documentary stuff. So that 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 got me going. Yeah, I haven't watched anything interesting on Netflix. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've been in and out of airports for like the past two or three weeks. So I have I have done very minimal Netflixing, which probably should be a good excuse, right? I should download something and put it on the tablet, but I, I honestly have not. So now we're talking about Netflix. Have you seen 13 Reasons Why? I watched the first episode of that. That's the one about the girl who commits suicide, correct? Yes. Yeah, and I thought it was just, I know, I think Selena Gomez produced it, or I read some article in like an airport magazine at one point about it. And I just, <laughs> I don't know, I felt like it was too heavy and... It, there's a certain amount of dark humor that I think is entertaining. Like there's a lot of Twin Peaks stuff that I find very entertaining. But then I just couldn't, I don't know. I just felt like it was too dark. Um, teen suicide is a pretty heavy topic. And the whole revenge thing, like if it were a French series, then I would totally be on board with it because the French are really great at revenge. And they did what Les Ravenons was the show that they had on Netflix that they converted into a, like The Returned, which was the American version, which was like a really poor rendition of what the French version was. But the French version was great. And I watched all those episodes with subtitles. And it was amazing. And I feel like I just, I watched the first episode and I was like, oh, this is just so sad and this poor dude. And I just can't like, mm, no. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I don't, I didn't, um, 
I didn't see it as a revenge show at all, but you know, it, it does get deeper. And I totally understand if someone says, Oh, I seen the first episode and yeah, eject. Uh, it's not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I watch stuff to relax, not just to, to cry more. You know, <laughs> life is hard enough as it is. It I'm like, is. okay, cool. You know, no big deal. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe it gets much better and, and, and more intense. And I'm sure that they develop the characters and you find out that she's, you know, even though she seems kind of like she's putting this guy through a really difficult series of challenges and he was just some nice dude that she worked with or whatever. I'm sure it all comes out later that, you know, it works out. But uh, well, she still dies. So yeah, uh, it doesn't but, really work out. But, but they are doing a season two. Um, so oh, really? Yeah, that's they're doing a season two, so I don't know how that's going to work out. But, you know, there's been a lot of debate on 13 Reasons Why because it's dealing with, obviously, this really heavy topic of teen suicide, and there's been a lot of people denouncing it, saying that, hey, it's it's glamorizing it. And mm-hmm. after watching it, I'm like, I don't know how you could, you know, glamorize, how that is glamorizing it. There is a, a very disturbing scene when they actually sh- show her uh, committing suicide, um, and I, I think that's the scene that everyone's, you know, talking about uh, about it, glamorizing it. But I mean, I was not glamorized at all. I hit the fast forward button, and I'm like, I don't need to see this because I have two daughters, and <laughs> they're getting near the teenage years, and this is something I don't want in my head. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think a lot of shows. That, I mean, even the violence in in Game of Thrones kind of fetishizes things that are totally horrific that you can't believe that a massive amount of people watched and felt entertained by. Right. And it's kind of a catalog of like, what, what's the worst thing that could happen next? Well, let's make that happen. (laughs) And how can we possibly screw over all the good people in this scene? (laughs) Let's, let's find a way. We're going to find a way. And every time you think it's going to get better, it just doesn't. And it's so painful. And after a certain, it's kind of, I remember when I was a kid, and uh, TBS or whatever the channel was had, or maybe it was USA, had Law and Order SVU on. And I remember thinking, even then, like, wow, Special Victims Unit. This is a totally like gross set of really serious crimes that they've made into like this boutique show. And all people watch is like sex crime problems, which are terrible. Like if you think about it, really, it's just kind of messed up. Like why do people? Why are people entertained by this? But they're, you know, people are fascinated by like all grotesque mutations of sex and death. And I don't, I don't know if I'm as impressed anymore by people who make shows that focus on that, because I feel like it's so much more difficult to engage you and entertain you with things that are not related to topics that are already fascinating to most people. If you can make a show that isn't about death, but is still really compelling and interesting, then that's kind of like good for you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I watched I watched the the Thirteen Reasons Why show, like top to bottom, only because Richie made me do it. Oh man, and, I was gonna uh, say this is the Thirteen Reasons Why Mafia here. Like you're all trying to convince me <laughs> that I need no, to no. watch the show. <laughs> I've already said if you well, want to check. I have no problem with that. No, well, no, 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 no. I mean, we're not gonna force you to watch it, but I watched it. You know, again based on Richie's recommendation, and it's an interesting show. It's a little teeny bopperish, obviously, because it's a yes. bunch of teenagers. But um, outside of that, I think it's. It, it brings up some interesting topics, right? And I think with society, we've just become a little sensitive because nobody wants to talk about the things that are happening. Like, I'm, I'm very sure that this is, is the reality for a lot of people. 
I mean, I don't think we look at the show as, oh, hey, this is entertaining, but it definitely makes you want to have the conversation, right? And I think if more people have the conversation and, and take this issue seriously, you know, it's not a, oh, Netflix is glamorizing suicide, but, you know, it's, it's provoking thought, right? And let's actually think about the issues that we really need to, to take care of. Yeah. What, what, what it reminded me of was when I was in high school and, you know, you're in high school and, you know, so much of that world is, is so tiny compared to like when you get out and you're in college or you're in the real world and all that drama that you had, even when I was in college, we had so much drama that we just kind of made up because we were bored. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, just all, it's so, um, not to say 13 reasons why it, it dealt with some very adult topics. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're 20 years removed from that and you're saying, no, look, things get better, right? When you're <laughs> out of high school, things get yeah. better. This is not the world. This is not how life works. This is actually opposite of life, right? Is high school is just so, um, it's so internalized and it's so, and you're, you're going, you're, you're trying to figure out who you are and everyone else trying to figure out who they are. And there, there's very much the seagull-like attitude where anything different when they're going to start pecking it because you're different. And, you know, you just think that that's how the world is and that's not how the world is, right? That's, just, mm-hmm. that's how high school is, right? And, if, and you get out of it and you're just like, oh, wow, nobody really cares about what I wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's it. Well, in all honesty, some people never get out of high school. But for those of us who graduate, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 we do uh, arrive at a point when it really doesn't matter what anyone's wearing. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, for those people that haven't got out of their high school mode, I just say fill her up with super unleaded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yep. So I know we've been talking a little bit about Netflix, but I really, I really want to talk about you. And I want to kind of find out a little bit more about, like, for instance, you work at the Mozilla oh. Science science project right yeah it was a little science lab yeah totally so before um before i looked in your profile i had no idea that mozilla had a science lab so what exactly do you guys do there oh yeah so um we have a the mozilla has a corporation side and a foundation side and the foundation um is the nonprofit portion of the company that doesn't necessarily build products like firefox or um sponsor projects like let's encrypt or rust which is a pretty uh cool language but we work on kind of thematic projects that roughly, or lately at least, align with kind of academic disciplines. So we have we had an open news team that focused on open source in the newsroom um, because a lot of really amazing JavaScript libraries were actually incubated in newsrooms. And we had a fellowship program um, that was co-hosted by the Knight Foundation and Open News uh, where we sponsored coders to go into newsrooms. And we have a similar thing for science. Uh, we have a a series of projects that the science lab runs, but we also have a pretty robust fellowship program where we support postdocs who want to open source their research. And so the general tenor of everything that we do is developing projects and programs to help scientists uh, release their data or publish open access or open source any aspect of their research. Because even though you might think that a lot of science is publicly funded by taxpayer money. Not a lot of it is released publicly afterwards. A lot of it is pretty siloed in different labs and um, people keep everything under wraps until they can publish because they need to get tenure and they need to publish in a proprietary journal, which means you have to pay to have access to it. Um, so it's this whole strange, sad economy around academia that forces scientists who had really beautiful ideas about making the world a better place to do things that 
are totally closed and 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 a bit selfish. And I think uh, so. A lot of the motivation at Mozilla is to work with scientists to open source their research. And it might not make a lot of sense for someone who makes a browser to be really interested in supporting scientists. But if you think about what a browser or what the internet was designed for, right? It was a place to share academic papers. It was designed as a place to share knowledge. And so those people should still be involved in the conversation around how our window to the internet develops and how we evolve the browser to support more advanced knowledge share. So really, that's kind of what I, I get to work on every day. And it's pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. So do you have any particular projects that you're working on? Because I'm kind of browsing through the site now and there's, there's tons of stuff in here. Yeah, totes. Um, so we just wrapped up a pretty big global hackathon that we do for all of our remote community members called the Global Sprint. It happened in early June. And we have a section on our website for projects that are open source projects that our community members make that we feature on our website. And we give it kind of a nice little skin on GitHub so that it's easy for people to jump in and contribute, even if they don't have GitHub accounts. And so we, during the Global Sprint, we host all these projects and support them and help them develop really good readmes and documentation and nice contributor files. And then we um, we encourage people over the course of about 36 hours at different remote locations to hack on these projects. Um, so we have people across all time zones and we have a book over, I think, like 50 some sites across the world. And then people can log in as remote participants, too. And so we were really occupied by that uh, recently. I also run the fellowship program, which um, has four postdoctoral fellows in the open sciences working in open source that are funded for 10 months. And so I run their program and their curriculum throughout the year. And we just wrapped up a week in South Africa where we are working in Cape Town, teaching workshops in how to open source different projects um, to scientists particularly. So a lot of scientists, you know, when they get to grad school, they're required to code but no one ever taught them to code. They taught them to do biology or chemistry. And suddenly, you know, their advisor wants them to write 4chan because that's what he was trained in. And they have to learn things in a really like broken way. So we have a lot of projects like our study groups program and our fellowships and the workshops that we run around the world that help people get onboarded to coding and to good best practices for documentation and for even just documenting their small micro projects or adding comments to their code, or um, providing a contributor file that allows other people to engage with their work, because it's it's not something that no one really gets formal training in. You just kind of learn from blog posts and online. And if you're not somebody who was trained as a software engineer, you don't know where to look for those blog posts or where to look for those suggestions. So that's a lot of what I get to work on um, every day, I guess. We also have community calls and remote dial-in calls every month or every other month that have guest speakers who work on open science projects and we feature their projects and we try to elevate them in the network. And let's see, what else do we do? We have a series of grants that we give out. So like little mini grants for um, open science projects that we think are particularly promising that no one will give funding to because they're open source and they're free. Um, so we give grants to those, uh, those projects. And um, yeah, we manage a, or we toggle between a bunch of different programs and events and activities. So as I'm looking through your profile here a little bit, so you went to you went to grad school for art, and I think I think it's kind of interesting that now you're you know you've you've moved forward into a technical, um, you know, working for a technical company. How you know how did what you did in grad school kind of help lay the foundation for what you're doing at work today? Yeah. So when I was an undergrad, I wanted to 
become a conservator, which is someone who restores paintings or mosaics at museums. Because I did a few years of chemistry and I thought I was going to be a chemist, but it was just a really miserable, stressful curriculum. And after about two years, I thought, what can I do with these credits that won't make me lose my scholarship, but will still be intriguing? And I was taking a class, a humanities class in art history, and I thought, these people are pretty cool. They're super laid back and they're really nice. And yeah, sure. Restoring paintings in a museum sounds really fun. So I decided I wanted to go to grad school for that. And and I applied and I started. But then when I ended up placed in a practicum, which is like the, the internship that you get when you're in grad school, uh, they placed me at an institution that had a lot of digital materials. Um, so they didn't really have paintings and mosaics to restore. They had a bunch of stuff on floppy disks. And they were like, how do we extract this stuff from the floppy disks? We don't no longer have floppy drives. And how, what do we do? Does about anybody this? have a zip drive yeah. around here somewhere? <laughs> what do we do with this like video art piece that some lady gave to us that now we can't run anymore because nobody has a VCR? And so we're, there were all these like conservation and restoration projects that were based on technologies and older technologies. And I thought it was just really fascinating. I was still in grad school at the time. So I kind of pivoted my program to focus on tech um, sort of forensics and working backwards from broken things to figure out what was wrong with them and um, developing in some cases, little emulators to, to make whatever the piece was look like it was running the same way it did when uh, the old operating system was supported or when um, we the API hadn't been deprecated or when you know everything was working as it had when the thing was released. And so I got really interested in that. And then I was hired by a tech company out of grad school that built databases for art collections. And so I thought, well, this is kind of analogous. You know, I can work on some conservation issues of like digital assets or whatever, and then I'll make some databases and that'll be cool and fine. And I learned a lot there. And then I applied for a, a fellowship one night because it was an agency. So we were working super late and I was working really late one night and I saw a tweet go out that said something about this fellowship at Mozilla that would partner you with organizations all over the world who needed coders but couldn't afford them. And I thought, well, I'll apply and do something open source because I'm sick of not doing open source things. And so then I applied and it was great. And I was partnered with this organization called Ushahidi. It's based in East Africa. They build open source mapping software. And I was really interested in visualization and mapping too. So I got really into maps and kind of was obsessed with maps for many years. I worked at a startup that built map software. And then I went back to Mozilla and worked at the science lab. So talk to me more about this map obsession. Because <laughs> ever since I was a kid, I loved maps too. Yeah, it is. I mean, I... I get it. I, even the, uh, especially like the old stuff, like the, you know, the ships falling off the edge of the earth type stuff. Yeah. So how did that obsession all start? Yeah. So when I worked, when I had my practicum, I was at the New York Public Library in the preservation division. So that's in Long Island City. It's a bit far away from um, the regular New York Public Library. But the regular one has a maps division and their maps are spectacular. And they have like Mapamundi, like you described, which are these really crazy ones with sea monsters in the oceans and printed on vellum or like animal hide. And they're just really insane and beautiful. And uh, can't you can't believe that they're still around. But then they have a lot of very interesting just like thematic maps about strange aspects of New York City, like architecture and evolution over time. So they have like maps that catalog buildings according to what they're made of so that firemen can, or at the time, so that they could find 
what fires would spread or identify fires that were particularly problematic when a fire would break out and figure out how to contain it. They have all these like really beautiful, interesting maps um, that you wouldn't even think people would bake, but they did. And so I got really intrigued by that kind of stuff. And I also, I liked visualizations, but I felt like maps are just so much more communicative than all other types of visualizations. Like you don't need to train people to view a map. Most people have seen one at some point and they immediately connect whatever they're looking at on the map with their physical world, which is so rare on the web. I feel like, you know, you never look at a bar chart and think like, oh, how does my physical self connect to this bar chart on in D3 that kind of animates? Like, but you look at a map and you you think about where you are in the world and where it fits with that map and whether it's relevant. And I felt like having something that was visual and beautiful that everyone can understand was so cool to make. So I really got into maps and, and online cartography is so nuts too, because there's so many, you no know, other type of visualization requires so much of the developer. I don't think like if you think about how you navigate on your maps, you know, you pan infinitely left and right and you zoom in to like very specific resolution and you still expect everything to auto calculate and be perfect and still show you how to get to the Starbucks or whatever. But you, you don't expect that from a D3 bar chart. You know, you don't zoom into the lowest pixel level and say like, I wonder what this tiny pixel looks like. You don't like, you don't pan <laughs> infinitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't command it to enhance and expect that it responds. And I think, it's it's fascinating the problems you get to engage with when you build maps um, and the things you get to expose to people and the relevance of the information that you're displaying is so much more profound, I think, than anything else I could work on on the web. So this is how kind of geeky I get. So I recently uh, started looking into role-playing games and with my kids. Mm -hmm. So I started uh, looking at some Dungeons & Dragons stuff that I could kind of, if it's too much, we'll we'll, we'll do it. But it's I was looking into it to start toning down and one of the uh, the source books had a map and I just got like, ooh, what's this? Material plane? Feywild? <laughs> Shadow plane? Oh, tell me more. What's going on here? And I must have looked at that for about 10 minutes. Like, oh, what? Oh, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> so I'm such an idiot. <laughs> no, that's so cool. Actually, there's a dude that I love on the internet I think his his username is Mew2 or me. Uh, it's M E W O two, and he built a project that is like amazing called Uncharted Atlas, and it, it has a Twitter account where it tweets like fake landscapes. But he wrote a blog post where he explains how he generates these artificial landscapes with artificial name labels and like different terrains, and it's just. It's fascinating how much thought has to go into like how to juxtapose a mountain range against the valley. And when you're making an artificial or a totally fictitious landscape, how do you make it more real for people? And what kind of rules do you have to apply to your code so that it will generate something that is realistic? It's really fascinating. Um, and I think everybody like, I mean, think if, if you think of the Lord of the Rings, like all the appendices yeah. were always way more like, or at least they were, they felt really fascinating. They felt like they created this thorough environment because you had the language index, you know, where it explained what all these elvish things meant. And then you had all these maps and you were like, wow, it's a whole universe this is so rad. Um, you really felt like you were immersed. And I think people really want to be immersed in, in new worlds. So it makes sense. Yeah, that map of Middle Earth. I, I must have spent hours studying that stupid thing. <laughs> Totes. 
So I was on YouTube and I, I saw the talk you gave at um, the WLIA conference. Oh, right. And yeah, I was um, YouTube stalking you for a little bit before you came on the show. Whoa, creepy. <laughs> you want to cut that part of the, <laughs> the interview, uh -oh. dude. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know there was but, a video um, up for that. So thank you for. Oh, you didn't? Oh, nah. well, I'm glad I could let you know. <laughs> but, um. But you showed off so much cool technology about mapping. Oh yeah. And I've I've never you know I've never gone into mapping. I've never I mean outside of you know embedding a Google Map thing maybe in a website. But I mean that's probably like the extent of it. But uh, you showed off so much cool stuff on what you could do with the map data. Like if I if I was a student and I really wanted to get into it, or you know maybe I'm just like a hobbyist or a tinkerer. Mm -hmm. Like how do I where do I go to really learn about doing this type of stuff? Wow, that's a good question. So um, well. Uh, Shameless plug, not so shameless. I wrote a book about this for O'Reilly. So if anyone's interested, uh, it's on Safari Books and it's called Geospatial Data and Analysis, which doesn't sound as cool as it is, but it's super rad. Um, but mostly, like, I have a whole, like, two chapters on open source technologies. And I usually recommend to my students that they start with open source stuff because people are pretty responsive in the community and you feel good about yourself developing things in open source and you get to play around and there's a lot of great Stack Overflow support uh, for open source things. So I'd say for data, people should check out OpenStreetMap, which is kind of like the Wikipedia for maps. It's a, a website and a series of little technologies that allow people to edit maps in their local communities and upload that data to, um, to a central place that other people can then query and pull data down from. So what's nice about this is that a lot of our map data comes from big companies like Google or, or different advertising companies that have, you know, that they map their own businesses. And so we have data about where their businesses are located or a lot of like corporate -y kind of things. But if you want people who are in communities that aren't necessarily um, a business uh, a business use case or a business value add, then sometimes the maps aren't as complete. So like if you go to places like in Nairobi, when I lived there for, for working with Ushahidi, there was a time when uh, there was a slum in the southern part of where I lived. And it looked like a park on Google Maps because it hadn't yet been mapped because no one had driven a car out to the slums and, you know, mapped the street view of this area. So it, it looked like a completely different thing and there was no contextual information or there wasn't really like a Wikipedia index or even a gazetteer that would give you perspective and context for how things were mapped all over the world. And people just kind of donate authority to different companies assuming that they have their best interests at heart. So I would say like students could start with OpenStreetMap, check that out. And the community is also super supportive. There's a lot of tools for web mapping, um, like Cardo, which is a place I used to work at. Uh, they have a bunch of open source libraries and APIs for getting started with web mapping. There's Mapbox. They also have a bunch of open source data analysis and also just mapping and visualization tools. And I'd probably get started with those those companies. And then uh, if you want to delve into the bigger data sets, you can um, look up things like MapD and some of the more advanced like WebGL mapping kind of things. There's a company called MapSend that is pretty cool and they make really nice open source technologies for almost like graphics computing, but for maps. So they, they have a project called Tangram that lets you create these really beautiful 3D kind of worlds 
or it has like shaders that make uh, make the maps much more spectacular than a typical slippy map. Um, so I would check out those companies because they all have open source components. And um, usually that's what I recommend to my students. And if anyone wants, wants a copy of my book, you can just look it up online or look up my name with O'Reilly stuff. <laughs> cool. What we'll do too is we'll uh, we'll put a link to your book in the sh- in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check it out, they could you know check the show notes out and uh, you know hopefully grab a copy. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. So Aurelia, one of the things that we like to do uh, on the show is you know we love to hear what our our guests are doing when they're not working. Mm. You know, like so so tell us like what do you do when you're away from the keyboard? Whoa. Well, I do a lot of things near my keyboard. I. I Okay, I'm a big bike freak. Like, I love riding my bike. Um, I have a beautiful bike, and it's an amazing bike. Oh, you do? What kind of bike do you have? I have, like, this beautiful 1980s Argentinian bike that's, like, a racing bike. I have, like, a big poster of Francesco Moser, who shares my last name, even though we're not related. But he's, like, a famous bike racer, Italian bike racer in my house. And I'm really into... I don't know. I just feel like it's very, it's very cool and very freeing to be able to get yourself places on a bike. So I'm really into that. I, um, I have a radio show, uh, which technically isn't away from keyboard because I ran it as an internet radio show for a while, but, um, it's called stereo semantics. And I generate playlists that start with a song and then end with a cover of that same song by a different group. And then I build a graph of different artists and songs between those two poles based on a theme and on Wikipedia connections. So I've been doing that for like uh, six years, I want to say. And it has a pretty gross GeoCities-ish website (laughs) that I kind of love. So (laughs) I maintain that project. And um, I have a lot of That sounds like maps for music. Yeah. Oh, totes. Yeah. Creating a graph map is is very similar, very analogous, I would say. It's like you're the James Burke of radio. (laughs) Totes. I try. Like the girl version. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But I, I guess, I, I don't know, I cook a lot. Um, I, what else do I do? Um, I have a lot of plants. Um, I do community garden kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I guess I have a pretty full, I travel a fair amount for work, which is pretty awesome. I get to go to some really cool places. And, and I run a book club for science books. So that's kind of fun. So you say you travel a lot. Like, give tell us uh, like. So what's one of the you know one of the most memorable places that you've been to? Whoa, that's a big question. That's so she says Vegas. We're hanging up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually never been to Vegas. A bit ashamed of that, but um, don't. Yeah, be. I've never been either. <laughs> don't be. But I guess Buenos Aires in Argentina is pretty awesome. I really loved being there. I. I went to Cape Town like a few weeks ago, which was pretty cool. And I got to drive down to Boulder Beach where the penguins are. And I feel like if you go to Patagonia in Argentina or you go to like the end of a continent where you see penguins, it's pretty epic. Like you're just feeling like you, you're standing in this area that, yeah, a lot of people stand, stood there, sure. But, um, but it's like the closest you'll get to the Southern Pole. And it's pretty close as the average person. I guess on a mainland would get, and that's pretty epic. But I think to, I, I want to say that like every city is really fascinating in its own way, and I think it's really important, uh, even for people who are typically tethered to a machine, to to go elsewhere. I remember when I was learning to code, like 
we were legit tethered to like an anchor because you had a desktop and like you were supposed to be as someone who did stuff in the basement and never left. And there were no travel opportunities. It wasn't a glamorous life. There were no like developer evangelists, right? They went around the world and yeah. convinced people that coding was awesome. Like it wasn't a glamorous you know, job. And now it's totally glamorous. And most of my friends have more frequent flyer miles than I do. And they have like, they're the DevOps dude at some company. And it's pretty awesome how that's evolved and how like suddenly we're more well-traveled. But I think it's really important to have perspective from other places when you do things that other people use all over the world, because I don't think you realize how like even the visualizations that I used to make, um, you don't think about well, if I make this awesome dashboard in D3, like a lot of people can't load that on low bandwidth. Like there's a whole chunk of the world that can't view this work at all. And if you're developing stuff that's like a like an investigative journalism report about how people in East Africa are living through some crisis and no one in that actual context can actually view what you've done, like that's problematic. And I think that travel really helps you get that perspective and realize that we're not just islands that type. We'd like to thank Aurelia for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with her. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes a tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have coder, photographer, and author, Mr. Ian Felton. We want to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! You know, I bet you there's some people out there that are saying, you know, these cats used to do one every week. What's taking them so long getting episodes out? I mean, this episode was recorded in July. What's been going on with these people? Well, there was a little thing called Harvey. <laughs> no, it was Irma. Was it Irma? It was Irma. Harvey was a different storm. Where did Harvey go? I don't know. To Texas? Was that away. the Texas one? I think so. There's too many hurricanes, man. We need to work out this global warming thing and listen, listen. chill out with these hurricanes. And what people don't realize is that we had another hurricane hit two consecutive weeks here in Miami. We had one this Saturday and we had one last Saturday. And it was the greatest thing ever. 
Are you are you talking about football, dude? Hell yeah, I'm talking about football. I'm talking about University University Miami football. That's what I'm talking about. What you know about that Miami boys? What you know about that Miami boys? What you know about that Miami boys? Hurricane baller boys. Turnover chain, turnover chain, turnover chain, turnover chain. Yo, you gotta tell me. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What is what is up with this chain, man? Like, I don't get it. Dog, you you've seen it, right? Thing about you've seen it. It's like five and a half pound chain. It's like. It's it's so Miami. It's got like all these like a blue and orange sapphires. It's it's huge, thick, uh, like ungodly uh, gold chain. And every time the defense makes a turnover, they put this huge Miami looking chain around it. I mean, it's like it belongs on South Beach, man. You know, and some Papi Chulo's, you know, <laughs> neck. You know, with with a cigar <laughs> hanging out. You know, and wearing the. The the Guadabeta, you know, but so Miami. It's so the best thing this ever. Chain, man. Like, so you're telling me, like, the players got together and put together for this this big ass chain for, for the oh, defense. Oh no, sir, no, sir. It was not the players. It, this was the coaches. So the defensive uh, coordinator said, you know, we should have something, you know, when the they, defense defense makes a turnover because we want to make turnovers, you know, a, a thing this year. We want to focus on that, and so that we could create turnovers and so we can get the ball when they have the ball and, and they started brainstorming and one of them said well what about this cuban link chain and so they went to a jeweler and who does a lot of custom jewelry and he created this chain with the big u on it and with all these sapphires and the turnover chain was born and now, get this, this is how crazy this thing is, right? So they do this on the sidelines, they put the chain on, and every, the crowd goes crazy and all this, but it's it, it, the, the, the ABC, this is ABC, right? They're supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to be impartial. They have a lower thirds on it when it happens, <laughs> and it says turnover chain recipient, and it'll give the name of the player. It's like it's a lower third. That I is mean, amazing. The, the chain has a personality. Wow. Oh man, it it is the best thing ever. It, it is it is so much fun. And it's like when we were watching a Notre Dame game this week, uh, and um, it was just us, you know, as a family watching it, and we're sitting here screaming, "Turnover chain, turnover chain, turnover chain, turnover chain!" You know, and we're jumping <laughs> up and down, and my daughter just will not be quiet about turnover chain, and she's annoying her, you know, my her sister and. So we please stop the turnover chain. It's like, no, we want more turnover chain. Turnover chain. Turnover chain. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun. And, and especially since the have last Have you ever taken years, your daughters through the game? Uh, we have not taken them to any games yet, right? Okay. So those of you who don't know, like going to a University of Miami football game, it's not the most family-friendly thing ever. Now, before we had the kids, uh, we were season ticket holders. Right, and we had our spot in the Orange Bowl, and it was awesome. And since they moved over to uh, Joe Robbie Stadium, oh or now Hard Rock Stadium, whatever, um, yeah, we we haven't we haven't gone. We had actually a season tickets for one year. It was over there, and it just wasn't the same. It, it just it's right, right. it just a different feel. And we're like, okay, we've got this young kid, and we probably should save the money. And so we 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 uh, we, we didn't renew our tickets. Yeah. But it's one of those things where you know there were fights. Um, like you're happens. talking about like not in the game. You're talking about it in the stands and like outside. in the stands. Yeah, I mean there there are fights and there's foul language <coughs> and there's things we kind of don't want our kids to be, right? You know, uh, there exposed yet. to. You know, no, I get it. Exposed. Yeah, and you know, I not that I 
you know, if they really want to go, I'll take them. No problem. You know, but, um, it's not one of those things where it's like, well, I have to go, yeah, you know, and I, I have you. to take them. They'll get to a game. Um, Eventually. Yeah. But you know, and Saturdays are busy for us because I've got the little one that's got, she's got soccer games and, um, tournaments and stuff like that. And so we do, we do that on Saturdays. So that's right. Right, right, right. kind of way the world works. Right. Right. Gotcha. But gotcha. it's been an awesome season. I mean, it's, it, and you know, uh, it's been one of those things and, and, and my, my parents know the Ricks. So I was introduced to them and, um, super good people. My gosh, just really okay. humble as humble could be, man. Just awesome. Awesome folks. So, nice. um, yeah, it, it's, it's been amazing to see this team and how well they're playing. And now we got something else to root for other than the Cubs and it's been great. <laughs> it's been amazing. So I've seen the memes about it, obviously about the chain. And I'm, I just see these these huge players, at least, at least they're huge to me, right, in comparison. And I'm like, what is, what is it with this big chain thing? I don't understand. Um, so I, I need to do some, my, you know, some research on it. It's good to get the backstory and really understand what exactly it is that we're talking about. But, um, yeah, the dog, they're on, they're on this week at noon. So on Saturday, watch them beat Virginia, and then you'll see the turnover chain go out. That's and then this Saturday? See, yeah, this Saturday. And then you'll see you all sure? the... Uh, the excitement from the crowd when the tournament chain comes out because they just they they lose they lose it they completely lose it it's amazing. Yeah, that's ridiculous, man. Yeah, I gotta make it out to one of these these games at some point, but um, you know. Yeah, the, not, the games I'm are fun. The, I mean, the, the the games are fun. You're right. I mean, the bigger the the, the smaller games, they're you know with like Virginia, right? I mean. Eh. You're not going to see the fights there, right? Yeah. But you, but against Notre Dame, I know there were some that were put on social media, you know, just some people dug in. <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily Miami fans, as the opponent teams too. Um, Virginia Tech, there was a, <laughs> it was a well-publicized one where a UM fan, she was drunk and belligerent, and the cops were taking her out. There was like three of them that were literally had her over uh, their head, uh, and then she, she goes and swings at one of the cops and then she swings again. And then the cop said, uh, when she, and she swung and hit the cop and the cop just went boom and knocked her out just in one punch. And, uh, that made national news, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's what happens when you have a night game and then people are there at 9am and drinking until 8pm this is what happens when you get a whole bunch of drunk people together and <laughs> fights are going to happen. <coughs> yep. Especially in Miami. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you go. You can be on South beach. You may keep a skein. I mean, it's just, you know, the Grove. I, I've been in a couple of fights at the Grove, you know, it just, yeah. you bring in alcohol with a bunch of, you know, people and stuff happens. <laughs> 